first want to say how thankful I was and arriving here to see there were cars in the parking lot. <laughs> Julie and I were saying, well, there's somebody here, praise God, uh, to worship together here on this day. I want to share with you, uh, in beginning our time today in Hebrews chapter 10, two heroes of our country uh, that probably no other preacher is going to talk about today. Um, one of which uh, was very instrumental in the turning of the Revolutionary War. This was a man uh, that was engaged in warfare and the, and the Re- Revolutionary War and the initial task of, of uh, first joining in with uh, Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys and, and taking over with Fort Ticonderoga, I'm thinking I'm saying that correctly. He was involved in the initial campaigns in the northern part of our country and Canada. Uh, he used cunning and skill, bravery uh, in winning his battles during and sieges. He was involved in Valley Forge and the campaign in Valley Forge and during those winters there in 1777 and 1778. He was involved in the singular battle of Saratoga. The battle of Saratoga was the first mighty victory of the Revolutionary Army, of of George Washington's army. Up until then, there had been many large defeats uh, with the British Army. A few uh, skirmishes won, but they had not won respect internationally because they've not uh, fought and won a major battle until Saratoga. In the Battle of Saratoga, this man was under uh, duress. He was in, uh, in arguments with the commanding army and, in fact, was placed under somewhat of a house arrest. Uh, as the battle raged on, he could not stand it anymore and there went out raging in the battle with such bravery and skill. In fact, was wounded uh, by, his, uh, by the ho- crushing of his, his leg by the horse. Uh, but because of his bravery, turned the tide in that battle of Saratoga. When they won that battle, the world, international world, saw that they could, America could win a mighty victory at that day and that moment in time. In fact, because of this, this defeat uh, of the British army, uh, France saw this, recognized the potential of the country, and decided that they too would join in with America and become allies, and thus significantly turning the tide of the army, of that revolution. Thousands of of British uh, soldiers surrendered on that day. But in 1779, this man made a faithful decision. Because of his rising up in the army, George Washington had tremendous trust in this, this young general, and had given him, was going to give him a whole left side of his army, but instead in, this, in the battle that was coming up, he decided, no, I don't want that. He, uh, he wanted West Point to guard West Point, and there in his own uh, dealings with the British army, made a deal to trade over West Point. Ward got out about this cons- conspiracy, and so when George Washington found out, this young general, knowing what was going on, fled the scene, 
there became an officer in the British army and also raided his own home shores of Connecticut. And thus, Benedict Arnold has forever been known as the traitor of our country. Despite his early achievements, his brilliance, the role he played in turning a significant battle that turned the war, he is always known with disgrace. In fact, uh, the battlefield, battlefield at Saratoga, preserved in the Saratoga National Historical Park, a monument stands in memorial to Arnold, but there is no mention of his name on the engraving. Donated by a Civil War general, the inscription on the boot monument reads, In memory of the most brilliant soldier of the Continental Army who was desperately wounded on this spot, winning for his countrymen the decisive battle of the American Revolution and for himself the rank of Major General. The Victory Monument at Saratoga has four niches, three of which are occupied with statues of Generals Gates, Schuyler, and Morgan. The fourth niche is empty. On the grounds of the United States Military Academy in West Point, there are plaques commemorating all the generals that served the Revolution. One plaque bears only a rank, Major General, and a date, born 1740, and no name. He is, of the American generals, the man with no name. Where our country's military elite refuse to name him. This treason. Is it right for us to still demonize this man, Benedict Arnold? And many of us would say, well, yeah. Yeah. He went against our country. And he could have singly, by his own hand, destroyed the nation. That thus as instrumental as he was in starting this country, he could have been just as instrumental in destroying this country and so that no one would remember July 4th, 1776 as, as other than just a footnote when there was an uprising in the British Empire. So yes, we still associate to this day the name Benedict Arnold with anyone who is traitorous, treasonous. How much more should we count and consider those who are traitors to the name of Jesus Christ? I want to present to you a very difficult passage. In Matthew chapter 10, last time as we were looking at this, we were not able to cover verses 26 through 31. It is a hard passage. The other here I wanted to mention to you took this passage in Hebrews chapter 10... And looking especially in verse 31 where it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And undoubtedly using that verse titled a sermon based out of Hebrew, uh, based out of Deuteronomy. Calling it sinners in the hands of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards preached in the early 1700s that sermon. And in that sermon preaching nothing but the judgment of God, and just briefly, that there is a way of salvation that, that sinners are to fly to in Christ. God, in the 1740s, using that sermon and other sermons, John Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, swept through a land, and a land that was filled with immorality, 
where folks were beginning to think there was no God, there is no God, that we were too smart for such primitive things as these, did not believe in judgment. God brought this and changed radically, widespread throughout a nation, the idea that there is a God, that there is judgment, and that there is going to be some place where everyone's going to live for eternity. And in so doing, people were crying and weeping to Christ, widespread throughout the nation. I don't think that there is any surprise whatsoever that the difference that the American Revolution did was in taking place couched in a context among a people who believed that there was going to be judgment of God, that despite what they did in the revolution, that they would one day ultimately held, be held accountable before God for how they did in the revolution as compared with the revolution of France just a few years after the American Revolution, where there was a wholesale national uh, emptiness, a void of accountability before God, where the idea and concept of God and being held accountable for God was considered too primitive and that they were too enlightened for such things. And so consequently, they see themselves and the nations in a bloody, bloody revolution where they essentially just traded one ruler for another for mob mentality and guillotines. There's a huge difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. One can arguably point to the fact that it was done because the context was wholesale different. And the American Revolution was done in a context where, by and large, even the deists believed that there was going to be an accounting before God. And so, with that thought in mind, I want to present to you the text that could have very well made the American Revolution what it was. And I'm going to present to you a lot of good, feel-good moments here. That's not the point. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 31, is about God's judgment being certain. And that's the point today. There is a day and time in everybody's life where they are brought before God. And there's either one of two outcomes that will take place in every person's life sitting here today. In Hebrews chapter 10, the whole thrust of the point is that believers are to draw near to Christ. And the whole point of the book, remember, as, as, the, as the writer is writing to these, these believers saying, do not, please do not forsake Christ. Do not go back and, and leave Christ and go back to sacrificial systems and, and, and the tabernacles and temples and and, and consider that Christ is of no effect. Do not go back. And so he, he gives them an argument. In the first part, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, all the way through verse uh, 25, the argument is draw near to God because of all that Christ has done, that he has made a way for you. So draw near, hold fast for that which God has held on to you for. And please, uh, for the sake of God, consider one another, exhort one another. Do you understand that that? Our effectiveness as believers and our, uh, our way of walking with the Lord. God has given mercies for us to walk through with, to the Lord and staying fast. And one of the ways he gives mercy is by a, but another believer encouraging and being faithful to you and to the Lord. To confront you, to rebuke you from time to time as needed. And to say, I'm praying with you and I'm walking with you. And so the first part, Hebrews chapter 10, all the way through verse 1 through 25, is stake. Stay close. Draw near because of what God has done for you. And then the text that we're going to look at today, verses 26 to 31, stay close to God because the alternative is frightening. 
Stay close to God because judgment is certain. And then, verses 31 through the end of the chapter, he's saying, staying close to God because of what God has done in your earlier life. And so, with this thought in mind, with this context, let's read together chapter 10, verse 26 through 31. And in honor of this being God's word, let us stand as we read it. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. You may be seated. This passage has been much debated as to what exactly it means, whether it's saying, hey, does this mean I can lose my salvation? Some would argue that it would, and I would say in error would argue that you could lose your salvation. So let's look at it first. Verse 26, if we, if we go on sinning deliberately, another way of phrasing this in some translations might say sinning with a high hand. All right, high-handed sins. In other words, this is in defiance. It's, it harkens back to Numbers 15, verse 30, 31, when God says, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he's native or sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. And so this person that, that's in question here is someone who is continually sinning, characterized by this action, knows good and well what he should be doing, and willfully goes against it. It has the, the high-hand expression, has the idea of someone that would do something in deliberate defiance, with an arrogance, in spite of what the Lord has said. It is as if the sinner is about to attack God, or at least lifting his hand against God. The implication is that Though it's been, it's been done in full knowledge of the law, blatant defiance of the word of the Lord, and therefore is dealt differently. I had brought to your attention some time ago that as you study in the Old Testament, there are numbers, uh, a variety of, of sacrifices. But you can, if you search the Old Testament through, you will not find the sacrifice that you do for sin done deliberately. Sin done deliberately, there was no sacrifice for but a broken and contrite heart, which David acknowledges in his own sin. And so, when you talk about someone who knows what God wants, but hates God and says, I will not go down this path, and as if raising their hand up to God and says, I don't care. I don't care. This person, if they go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So, in other words, they know. This knowledge is not just a vague aspect, but it, it has a, an intensity in the, in the verb use here. That in other words, they're they well acquainted with the gospel. They're well acquainted with Jesus Christ. So let me just say to you that the person who's out in your street that doesn't know about Jesus Christ, they're not capable 
of this sin. They're not capable of it. Who's capable of it? It's the ones who sit here. It's the ones who may have grown up going to church and hearing the gospel. These are the ones who are only able because you have to have a knowledge of what the gospel is about. And so this is a special warning to us. Those of us who are well acquainted with the gospel. Let me just share with you that what I'm about to say is, is kind of like the backdrop. The black velvet that you would put the diamond on. All right. The black velvet only accentuates the beauty of the diamond. What we're about to share is the judgment of God that accentuates the cross. Spurgeon said, if you think lightly of hell, you will think lightly of the cross. If you think little of the suffering of lost souls, you will soon think little of the Savior who delivers you from them. This is not something you hear often at churches. It's not popular. It's not, it's not how to grow a church, you know. It's a good way to drive people away. But it's the Bible. And the problem is that we think very little of God's judgment of sin. So, what is there for those of us who know the gospel, familiar with it, but reject it and say, I don't care, I'm going my own way. And let me just clarify, this is not for those of us, I, I know some of us think, well, you know, my sin, I, I do, I often know in advance that it's wrong. That's probably 80% of our sin, isn't it? You know, I mean, you lie, you know you're not supposed to lie. I mean, you learned that early on in your life, but you, you did it anyway. And so some of us are thinking, oh, no. I, I remember counseling one of our, our members, and, and they had heard this passage, and they were reading this and thinking, Pastor, I, I don't think there's anything I can do anymore. I'm afraid that I've just got hell in front of me because I have sinned in my life, and I knew well in advance that it was sin, and I did it anyway. It was presumptuous. Let me just clarify that this is not what's in mind here, but... This is the one who is attacking God by deliberately sinning, and they're characterized by that. Chances are, this is the one who could care less that they're listening to me right now and just thinking, well, that's just, that's a gospel preacher for you, always talking about hell. So, what is there for this person? Verse 26, first of all, you need to know there is no sacrifice for sins that can be done for this person. Why? Because there is only one way that God has provided for salvation, and that way has been rejected. So what is there? Verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Judgment, zeal of fire, a fury of fire. There's so much I want to say here. You just need to know that there's one of two possibilities. Either you're in Christ or there is a fury of fire of judgment. Sometimes we think, well, you know, God's just going to be half-hearted in his punishment. Sometimes, like, I might be half-hearted in punishing my child. That's completely the wrong idea. We belittle God's hatred of sin. Our house right now, it's, it's interesting. Um, I've got mixed feelings when I come to my house. It's, um, you know, you see it, you see the lights on, you see the evidence of toys around, and you think, oh, this, this is good. I, I like being here. But now, when I look at the garage, 
I've got mixed feelings because there is a nasty stench in our garage. I mean, it's just, let me just tell you how bad it was. I think a few days ago, we just noticed it. It's like, one night it was fine, the next morning I was like, oh, what? And so I'm thinking, what could this be? And I'm, I'm thinking, man, did our septic system go bad? And I was like, well, no, I don't smell outside. It's just in the garage. And I thought, well, maybe I just ran over some dead animal. Because that's what it smelled like, a dead animal. I was like, maybe there's something in the car, in the engine. You know, a cat got up there, or a squirrel, a deer, or something. I was like, and I'm checking the tires. And I'm thinking, oh, nothing in the car. I think maybe there's a dead snake, rat. Rodent, some animals caught in that. My wife uh, sent me an email upon her discovery. I said, I found out what it was. Our freezer stopped working. So the chicken, the turkey, the various things we had, just rotten. Just rotten. I mean, it's just like, oh, you know. And the, and the freezer... There's no redemption. I mean, the thing, it's really old. It's probably about 40 years old. Um, it, you know, it was, it was bound to happen. My wife took upon the task of cleaning it out, and she sent me promptly an email. I owe her big time. <laughs> I'm talking maggots, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Now you're feeling it. Okay. So every time we go in the garage, I'm thinking, all right, now where's the dump at? How can I get a trailer? Let's, uh, this freezer's days are numbered. It would be a great mistake if the freezer somehow could think and say, wow, they must like my aroma because it's been a few days and they hadn't, they hadn't brought me out of the house. That would be a huge mistake. We are looking forward to the time that the source of this is getting out of our house. It just stinks. All right? Listen, if that rotten meat, that source of it there, is so offensive to our nostrils, how much more is our sin before God? I'm going to tell you, it is so much more, infinitely more. If I have this attitude with the freezer that stinks... What must be God's attitude toward the sin in our heart, the sin in our life? And do not be confused in thinking, well, God must not care that much because there's no certain judgment. There's no instant judgment being done. It must be okay. I will continue in my sin because, after all, God doesn't care. He doesn't see The risk of facing the wrath of some of you moms. I'm going to say that's stupid. Some things are stupid. That is the height of stupidity. When we say, God doesn't see me in my heart committing this sin. No one knows about this. The privacy of my home. Privacy of my time. We have fallen into a lie that says God doesn't see. God doesn't care. He does see. He does care. And the Bible says, this sin will be judged. And so that 
implores upon us and begs us, please come to a Savior. And if God provides salvation and says, this is the way, and we say, no thanks, I don't really care about seeking after Christ. I have so much more fun seeking after these things. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no other option out there. A few weeks ago, we were kayaking down uh, Noose River. This is an adventure. I've always wanted to do this. Uh, I did it once, going on a US-1 with one of my girls, and I thought, you know, one of these days, I'm going to just go, I want to go down, all the way down from the dam to my house, uh, and I just want to do that. I, I see it, it was, you know, it was a few weeks ago, it was raining so, you know, so much, and I look at this, it's like the higher the river was, the more I wanted to do it. It's like, wow, that just looks so much fun. So I finally, we, we got uh, a friend of ours, one of the members of the church, got uh, a kayak that had one for me, and that had one for one of the girls, and so I got it, Chris, our second child, she hadn't done this yet, so I was like, let's do it, we're going we're gonna to do it, and and, and so we did. It was fun. I mean, we saw all kinds of animals and interesting things. And, uh, and you're floating along. About an hour and a half into it, Krista uh, just starts crying. It's like, I want to go home. And I'm just like, we're going home. You know, we're going home. We're doing it right now. And, but that wasn't enough for her. And she just keeps crying. And sometimes I have a hard time working with her sometimes. And it's, not, it's, it's my fault just trying to figure out how to do that. And I was like, thinking, well, there's no mama here <laughs> to go to. It's either me or nothing. And uh, she knows it. I think that's why she's crying. And so uh, I, I come back to her. And I said, well, you know what? What, are, what do you want me to do? What, you know, you want something to eat? You know, you want something to drink? And I was like, nothing. I was like, no, I want to go home. I was like, I was like do you, you want me to carry you? You want me to tell you? I was like, oh, just go. I want to go home. I was like, oh. And so finally, you know, it's like five, ten minutes of crying. And I'm going to tell you, that's long. You know, uh, I'm just thinking, I'm praying, Lord, what can I do? What do, I mean, she's not letting me help her. She's just crying, Lord, what, what would you do, Lord? And I'm just like, God, I, help me here. Because I'm at my end. Like, there's nothing else I can do. And, and finally, I come back to her one more time and say, all right, you want me to, you want me to tell you? And she's, she's very reluctant to, to agree with me about most stuff. And, and she just said, just nodded. I said, okay. I got some rope, towed her, and we did the next three hours, <laughs> me towing her. But along the way, we see this, this um, sign. I, this was new to me. I was coming up on 64 uh, under, on the Noose River, and, and there's a sign. A thousand feet ahead, dam. Warning. Imminent danger. Mortal danger. You know, when you see things like that, your first thing is like, really? <laughs> it's like, you don't believe it at first. Like, maybe this is an old sign. <laughs> you, you, know? you just start, I mean, it's like you just can't take it at face value. And then as we were, of course, Carissa sees the sign. She's learning how to read. What does mortal mean? <laughs> what does that sign say, Daddy? I said, um, there's some danger ahead, you know. And what is a damn? You know. <laughs> And so she's asking these questions, and she's, uh, she's starting to sense, I, you know, I can tell she's getting apprehensive. And, and after a while, I, you know, I look at the horizon, and it's like the horizon just ends. I think, well, that's not good. So let's, we go over to the side, and I uh, say, so, well, you just wait right here. And it's weedy, you know, it's thorny. We've got flip-flops and shorts. I'm thinking snakes or whatever, you know, I'm just... I'm freaking out, and I'm walking. I'm trying to get ahead. It's like, yes, there is a dam. I call, call my friend Jeff and say, Jeff, you know, there's a dam up here. You know, what? how do we cross this thing? And he's like, oh, that's news to me. I, know, you know, I don't know about it. Is, is it a big dam? I said, well, I see mist. <laughs> I see mist coming up. 
I said, well, that's probably a big dam then. I was like, okay. And so I scout it out, and I find one path, one dirt path of which I can circumvent the dam, can go around. And it's, a, it's through the woods, and I, I tell Chris to pay close attention. We've got to cross this river. We've got to, we've got to get this. Stay close to me. I've got you tied. Follow my directions. And we get to this one path, and there's just one path, and I'm carrying my kayak in which her kayak is tied <laughs> through the trail, up hills, through the woods, broken glass. And I'm just like, oh, this is so exhausting. But it was preferable. We go around and see the 16-foot dam and water just rushing. And I'm thinking there's no way we would survive that. What we've got here in this text is a dam in front of you. When we read this, and we read it together, so I know you heard it. I know you read it. What you saw here is imminent danger, dam ahead, mortal danger even, thousand feet, it's coming, pay attention. And what you have here is Scripture saying there is a path of which you can circumvent this danger. But Jesus said, If you want to follow me, you're going to lose your life. Forget any dreams that you might have of floating down this river. Stay tied to me. You will endure difficulties. You will endure hardship. You will have to persevere. But I'm going to tell you, it is preferable. One of the problems that we have in life is that life gets tough and it gets hard and we think, I want to quit. I want to just, this is difficult. I didn't know it was going to be so hard. But part of that is we have forgotten what's the other option. What's the other option? Apart from following Christ, there is certain judgment being in the hands of an angry God. And we start bickering about living life here and we forget that there is hell. One of the problems that we deal with sometimes in dealing with life and we complain about God about what life is and how life isn't what all we thought it was going to be is we've forgotten that there's a thing called hell. Church, green pines, have we forgotten that there is a certain judgment that is described as the zeal of fire, the fury of of fire that is a consuming aspect. I assure you there's a lot of things we would not bicker about. We would not complain about that we would not deal with because we understand the option. It is either Christ or judgment. Verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This this does not... seem to imply that you just cease to exist, as some folks will say. Or you just cease to exist. If that's true, then why would Jesus say about Judas it would be better if they'd never been born? Hell is not just a ceasing of existence, but it is a judgment, an eternal existence of judgment. The details are clear, and the warning is alarming. Do you understand the peril of playing Christianity? Do you see the peril of it? To say that I'm just going to live life right and, and try to be pleasing to the church and to the people and feed 
my ego, when all along, the Bible saying the ego is the problem. The self is the problem. Follow after Christ. And so he does in verse 28 an argument of lesser to greater. He says, consider, consider the Old Testament. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy in the evidence of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17, verse 2 through 7. If you were found guilty and you had two or three witnesses, you were stoned. This is what happened with, with the, the woman called in adultery. You remember bringing it to Jesus? And says, this woman was caught in the act. She should be stoned. And they were right according to the word of God. So how does Jesus deal with it? He says, well, if anyone is without sin, let them cast the first stone. And when all realized their own self, they all left. There was no longer two or three witnesses there before Jesus. And so Jesus is able to legally say, well, neither I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So does that mean that the stench wasn't so bad to Jesus? No. It's just the mercy was so great. The mercy was so great. And so, verse 29, if that's true for the Old Testament, how much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? Argument of lesser to greater. If that happened in the Old Testament, how much more this greater covenant that he has just espoused, that he spent the last ten chapters bringing out the preeminence of Christ. And look, if you reject the gospel, you reject Christ, you rejected the preeminent one, you rejected the Son of God, you spurned him. Not only have you spurned him, you profaned the blood of the covenant, you spurned his work, you created. What does that mean? You profaned it. You treated it as common. You treated it as common. It's just like, oh, that's a good story, Pastor. Yeah, you know, that's great. Jesus died for my sins. You know, and, and, and Buddha's got his own way, and, and then Muhammad's got his own way, and we all got our own ways. That's just, that's good for you. Treat it as common. As if God did not see his son die on the cross and he faced the full wrath of our sin. We treat it as common. By which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of of grace. Can you picture a man lying in the gutter and rags, covered with sores, hungry and homeless? He's there because of his own sinful choices. I had a fellow came up to me while I was traveling in the stand. He wanted me to give him a dollar. It was Father's Day. And he said, I'm stranded and I want to see my dad. And I asked him, what did you say? And he got a little closer and I could smell the alcohol on his breath. I said, well, maybe if you uh, didn't get drunk last night, you might have had money uh, to go to see your dad. <laughs> he said, oh, no, 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 that was last night. I'm not drinking anything. I said, well, sorry, buddy. <laughs> I'm not very, I, I'm not always merciful, <laughs> partly because I've seen, seen it a lot. But can you imagine, if, if in this situation, if someone's just laid out, hungry, A kind, generous man says, you know what, I'm going to give you, I'm going to take you to your father, but let's get you cleaned up. I'm going to take you to the hospital because you've got some issues going on. I'm going to get you clothes. I'm going to get you fed. And you're going to have a nice place to travel and stay in until we get to your dad's house. But what if that person says instead, forget you, curses him, spits in his face, and tells other people that man's offer was worthless. That would not be as bad as insulting the spirit of grace 
by turning your back on the free pardon that he offers through the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.19 says it this way, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have been continued with us. But they went out, and that it might become plain that they were not all of us. There are within a group, a visible church, those who are not of the church. John acknowledges this in 1 John. The author of Hebrews is acknowledging that here. Jesus acknowledged that in Matthew chapter 7. There are going to be those who are visibly a part of the church in this world, but they are not a part of God's church. The outraging, the spirit of grace and thinking is not just enough to appease mankind, but never turning their heart to God. Verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. You see, when we come to God, we come to the ultimate and, uh, and true source of justice. We can't say God is just and loving, apart from saying that God will condemn sin. Think about it. If there is no hell, then what makes Jesus' sacrifice such a loving thing? If there is no hell. In fact, a God who will crucify his own son and and give wrath to him that did not need wrath, that there was some other way, that's not loving. What makes the gospel good news is the fact that there is bad news. That there is hell. We need to understand that perhaps for some of us sitting here, some of us that are in our membership, some of us that we know, some of our own children perhaps, some of our parents, we need to come to grips with the fact that the only thing that keeps them from falling this day in the hands of a living God that will consume their sin is one heart beat. One heart beat keeps one person from being in this place to being before a God who is angry with the sin of their life. Because when that heartbeat comes and it stops, they have been given the last opportunity to receive the grace of God, but they have spurned Christ. Listen, there are some in our congregation that I'm, I'm very fearful for. I'm very fearful for. And I think maybe I need to ask for forgiveness for not taking this seriously and, and considering this with all of my heart and realizing the truth of this. I dare you to come to grips with this. Paul Johnson's book, Modern Times, details the Nazi war crimes against the Jews and other European citizens. His description of Auschwitz, where there's 25,000 Jews who were literally worked to death. Two million were gassed, followed by the ghastly search for gold and the removal of the teeth and the hair, which were regarded by the Germans as strategic materials. Then burned to ashes at the rate of 2,000 bodies every 12 hours blows our mind, the imagination of a, what man is capable of. And he explains the Nuremberg trials where German industrialists involved in the death camps were given remarkably light sentences and paid little reparations for those victimized. And he asks this question, but who is foolish enough to believe there's justice in this world? All we have are just little footprints. 
The Bible says there is a day and time when the justice of God, the vengeance of God, will be fully expressed. And as heinous as all those acts were, this passage tells us the worst. We have such judgment for those involved in that. But consider that one Jew, Jesus Christ, who was given as a gift, an act of God, the expression of God, God in flesh, showing us life, providing for us life, who by his choice and the pleasure of God lifted up his own body, his soul to be the object of his wrath, God's wrath for your sin. And someone comes along and says, that's nice. I don't want it. I prefer my own path. Do not be surprised when floating down the river of life you find a very erupt fall where mortal damage is not an if. And it's not just mortal. It's immortal. And it's certain. I'm going to tell you, this is not an easy message, but it is the message of salvation. It is the message that very well could have been the saving effect in our country in the 1740s. Little wonder that it is the forgotten message of the church today. And little wonder we have little effect in our society. Here is the end goal that the writer has. Will you take seriously seeking God? Because it's either seeking God or it's being sought by God for judgment. We've got this little thing where we say, well, I'm going to play Christianity. I'm going to do those things that are obviously right, that are outward, but in my heart, I don't really care that much. And we're being really dumb. And what's so aggravating about that is we think that's okay. And as a church, as a culture, we think it's okay to play Christianity. And we don't seek God. This passage is telling us, seek God through His grace, through Jesus Christ, through the way paved before us, through Christ, through the veil, are besought by God for judgment. Either way, we're all headed to God. Which one will it be?